my life. It's in my DNA. From above the water and below the surface. It's who I am. Join me as I travel the world in search of the most insane fishing experiences on the planet. You got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Big fish right there, Al. Yeah, baby. G'day and welcome to Al McGlashan's podcast, the best job in the world. Now, I'm down at the Melbourne Boat Show, so it's going to be a bit noisy, but I've got someone on today that everyone has been asking about, Richie Abella, who is the gun sword fisherman. And we're going to talk sorties today because everyone's been asking about it. Richie, you've been down here working at the boat show when you should be sword fishing. Come on, let's admit it. Oh, listen, Al, it, it's, it's killing me at the moment. I've got this uh, boat show gig and Sav Winch have, have offered me the space. It's too hard to refuse. And, um, you know, Murphy's Law always. <laughs> Look at the weather forecast and Sunday... Sunday and Monday, absolute perler days. We're still going to try and sneak away and get a get a fish in on the Monday, but I think I'm going to have to ride the, the Sunday off, unfortunately. The boat shows a, a commitment that I've made, and uh, yeah, just have to ride it. How frustrating is it that you sit there and go, right, you know, when you actually work in the industry, everyone says, oh, it's the best job in the world. But no, you've got to be here selling charters, not doing charters, when it's dead flat and perfect, and you're in, a, in the chaos of the Melbourne Boat Show. Oh, it's, it's part and parcel of it. Sometimes you've, you've got the weather, you don't have the charters. People can, like all my sort of fishing is all standby basis. So you get people that want to come, but can't put, you know, can't dedicate that specific window where the weather when, when the weather's good. So it makes it really hard. Like it's a glamour job by name only, but when-, when By name on, only, that's exactly what it when is. When you're traveling, like, you know, I'm doing, you know, working in between Portland and doing the, you know, we have an amazing run of big tuna as well as the swordfish, but this time of year, this is what I'm dedicated to. My swordfish season is something that keeps happening every year and, and you know, being the only really dedicated charter operator in Australia, really, that's, yeah. that, that dedicates two, three months of the year to swordfish, you know, it, it's a pretty special thing. And and this is probably a good part for it, why I grabbed you. And I know you, everyone's going to hear there'll be a bit of background noise because we are at a boat show, so it's busy. So if you're going to complain about the noise, tell someone else because we don't care. But <laughs> for everyone that doesn't know, Richard, I've been friends with old Sammy Musket now. It would be going back 20 bloody years or at something, least, wouldn't it? At least. And what's really unique, and people don't realise this, is that the early days we all marlin fished and learnt the whole process, but we were always, you and I, always passionate about sorts. And we did, and people don't appreciate now, which I feel sort of, they should go and do those nights out fishing. Oh, it's the apprenticeship. I call it the apprenticeship. It was shit. It was shit. I call it the apprenticeship. Unless you've done nights on the sorts, you haven't done an apprenticeship. You now, haven't. Describe what a night is. So people think nice, calm sea, lovely, moonlit. Oh, you try. Trust me, you try for the nice, calm sea. <laughs> you, you get all the weather right. You try and go for your moon phases. I mean, back then, what we knew, you know, a lot of the information came down from the, you know, the long-lining fleet and the professional boats, you know. 
We're like, you know, you've got your trying finger in the pie, you know, who knows that operator and see when they're getting swords. I mean, there's a lot of water out there, you know, but, you know, an average night on the water, you know, be leaving in the afternoon, you do a bit of a troll around, get out to like, you know, if common knowledge back then, you know, it was this folklore almost that, you know, you've got to be in a thousand metres plus to even have a chance of catching a sword, you know. So, you know, here we are travelling, you know, good 80 k's offshore, you know, and, and back then, you know, sounders and stuff that we had, they didn't pick up sea mounts or anything That's like that. That's an important part of the technology, yeah. isn't it? But for everyone, when we did the early days, we'd go out and fish. You'd go and fish for tuna during the day, chase yellowfin or maybe marlin, and then we'd sit there all night, and it's freezing cold, wet, and do you know what? We caught bugger all fish. We caught the odd sword. To be honest, we caught one here hey, and there. Hey, let me just stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there because I hate you. <laughs> I, I hate you. Your first night on the sorties, you ended up catching one, okay? I was as filthy as they come when that <laughs> happened. How many nights? And we had the board? camera crew on board, the yeah, old days of Strike no, Zone. I don't even go there. You were... well, hang on, it gets worse than that, Rich. So Strike Zone was the old DVDs, you know, yeah. in the old days of doing DVDs. And it was blitzing. And we'd, we'd done really well out of it. So we said, you know, my old cameraman, Ron Croft, goes, all right, what do we do that's really hard? I said, mate, we're going to do a swordfish. I said, but we might have to do 30 nights. See, <laughs> we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to do that. So we go out, we drive out, it's dead flat. Put the baits in, put the kettle on, turn around, rod goes off, Vic Levitt hooks up, start fighting it, bring up, end up eating both baits, bring it up, catch a sword, like in the first hour of fishing, and my cameraman goes, oh cool, so what do we have to do to get a bigger one? And I'm going, we caught, we caught a sword of every, I got a sword, I've got a sword, sword, you know, Richie, you go, I hate you, and it's like, but yeah, and he goes, oh, it's not that hard, I went, no, no, this doesn't happen. Well, the next 10 nights out, we never saw a bloody thing. And he goes, oh, this is shit, mate. I hate I this. did 18 years of chasing swords at night, and all we did was talked about this elusive fish that we couldn't catch. And we, there was no, you didn't even get bites, or you didn't, like, you might have had I, a bite, but yeah. I hooked, in 18 years, I hooked guaranteed, now that I'm all over these things, we guaranteed hooked six sorties. One I seen just give me the bird as it come off the hook under the boat lights. <laughs> so that was definitely that we seen him and everything. And I'm like, you're kidding, you know? Like, you demoralising mongrel fish. The, the most demoralising fish. You know, like back in those days, like to, to have what we've got now is just, it's it's hard to fathom. It really is hard to fathom that um, we have a swordfish fishery, just the same as we've got a marlin fishery and we've got a tuna fishery. It's, it's hard to wrap for me to wrap my head around, honestly. I, I'm fishing it now and I'm living it. And I'm, I'm really thankful. I used, to, I used to be green with envy at the New Zealand fishery and, and some of the ones around the world. I'm like, look at Australia, look at the geography of our country. How can we not have, have the swordfish. something like this here, surely? And it was just, you know, obviously the lack of knowledge and, and, and willingness and techniques that have moved along and, and guys like myself and a couple other guys, Leo in, in Yeah, down in Tasmania. In Tasmania, they've just gone and ventured where no one else has and that's it. But even before that, so we did the night fishing for those miserable years and then we started daytime fishing and dropping baits down and, but you and I were always fishing that thousand fathom because that's where the long line has told us where, and that's where they caught them. So we were fishing baits out there and you ended up, now you caught the first daylight sword pretty much, which was Jarvis Bay? That was off Jarvis Bay and uh, you know that was when I started look, looking into these techniques that were coming from the United States and the Stanzik family 
Uh, you know, and there was I remember a great article written by Tim Simpson after he'd finished uh, a charter up there. He'd done a trip to the US and came back with this, you know. Oh, he, he went over and fished with Nick and yeah, all that. Yeah, he went, I don't, know, I don't think he fished with Nick. No, I didn't, he didn't fish with Nick. He fished with, I think, Nick's um, uncle or father. I'm not, don't quote me on that one, but he fished with a relative of Nick, one of the founders of, of this sort of So stuff. for everyone that doesn't know, so Nick Stanks and all that, they're the guys that do Bud and Mary's, which is down in bottom end of Florida there Florida, somewhere. yeah. And they, they pioneered pretty much that daytime sword fishing out there, which is quite different from ours. But the guys from Halco went over there, fished and got bites every day you know a few of our mates James Yerbury and of course you know the guys at Blue Water all went over there and fished and then started to bring back and at the same time New Zealand was already starting to do the daytime that's they- right well New Zealand has had and and to my knowledge and you know, I used to read every little bit of literature that was anything written about a swordfish because back then there was no social media there was none of this Facebook stuff or YouTube you know it was Magazines. Simply magazines and articles. I remember um, I did the boat prime time. Jeez, I forgot the name of the skipper now. Uh, Bruce, is it for that? No. No, that, that was Bruce Livis was um, from oh, Radland. Yeah, Zoo and he did a few early days. And he, was, he was probably one of the, the guys that started the nighttime stuff here and did really well. Um, oh, the guy from from prime time in New Zealand has Hang just on. left me the name and I know we'll check it up now this is the beauty of Google we've got we can just type it in uh, I'm so, going to kick myself because I, I know his name really well and it's just old age kicking in now we are getting older mate that's yeah, the other part are, to it it doesn't wait for anyone I'm, but he caught a couple over now he he started doing it in New Zealand I mean, think, I'm pretty sure well, he's he doing was doing the night time thing and he'd caught some absolute rippers at night time in New Zealand like so it was a natural transition for them. They already had the grounds that they were doing really well at the night time. And naturally, as soon as this daytime technique came, they, they were kicking goals with the daytime stuff as well. So that, that New Zealand fishery has been, you know... Established amazing. way before us. Oh, way, 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 way. Primetime charters. We're just going to see. Isn't it terrible? We both know them and we can't remember them. Oh, the... I can't think of the damn name. But it's, and it's interesting that... And so New Zealand started kicking off quite early in the piece there. Can't even find it, so it's not even coming up now. But that's all right, we'll come back to it. But Primetime were one of those early ones that kicked it off over there. And then all of a sudden, everyone in New Zealand was daytime catching. Yeah. And the Green Patch, I think they call it over there, which was one of those spots that, you know, just a reef offshore, and they started catching them. And what was interesting, that we, I was still fishing out wide. So I was still convinced they're offshore, so I'm driving past the fish, sadly, at that stage. You know, and then was it Leo started down in Tassie and... Well, Leo, Leo, actually, I'll give you a bit of history on Tassie. So, Leo was the first one who successfully did it on a, at a daytime level and sort of, you know, I, I reckon I could definitely say Leo, Leo pioneered the grounds that we, we, we mm. now target them today. And he's, he's, he's instrumental in what the little work that he did those couple of years, you know, going out there. And he was instrumental in, in, in you know, getting, you know, fishing those closer grounds that we just drove past back in the day like we had this long line of mentality that we just drove out to 2000 meters and and hung a bait out there and you know what's interesting there is that was the information that we had so we could like you said earlier we read all the magazines read everything talked to long liners and commercial guys and they said no no we don't catch them in there because they don't fish in closer because sharks i think so they all fish wider so we kept going and we're ironically driving straight past them that's right and you know look i fished tassie for giant bluefin for a good five years before I did a day on the swordfish. And, and my swordfish mania 
was rancid when I was down there. I'd always talk. I remember having conversation after conversation with local charter boat operator Stewie Nichols down there and always asked him, you know, like, you know, have you ever heard of anything? You know, and he, he himself personally has found two dead swords floating in the surface up there at different times. And one of them, I remember him telling me, was absolutely enormous. And on, on, on many occasions, the blue-eyed traveller fishermen would hook up stuff that they couldn't stop. But it wasn't until, you know, it was a, I think it was a couple of years before Leo, mm-hmm. because I actually did an article for Blue Water magazine over this. I was all over everything that yeah. swordfish. And there was a, a, a bunch of guys that living down south of Tassie, they were just doing their blue eye fishing during the day. And this is this sort of really, I think, inspired Leo too as well to go, hey, we need to go and have a crack, you know. And um, they were doing some blue eye fishing and they came up with a string of raised brim and they, they literally dragged them to the top. Something gave a little bump on the rod not too far from the surface. Anyway, they've pulled their, their raised brim in the boat and they've looked down and they can see a silhouette, a shadow, which at the time they thought was a was a mako Mako, yeah. They had an old wire trace and I think one of those old Daiwa star drag reels, you know, just sitting there, just something you'd never even use on a, on a sword. They fed out a wire trace and lo and behold, if, if, if memory serves me right, that fish was like 163 or 167 kilos, but they caught a sword that they fed a bait to that had chased their string of... Um, all the way to the surface. All the way to the surface. And they, they could see it swimming under the boat, but didn't know it was a sword. They only could see the big shadow of a big fish, assumed it was a mako. And, Isn't that funny? Yeah, and it was a, it ate a bait on a wire trace and, and they got it. Isn't that funny? And then I remember Leo actually called us going, oh, I'm going to try fishing from, they catch him in 600 metres, what do you reckon? I said, oh, I'll give it a crack and see what happens. And that really started kicking off and, you know, thinking of Tassie of all places, but... It's the extremities, isn't it? You think of those swordfish, those bigger ones are always at the extremities of their ranges. And Tassie has all the food, all the bluefin are going there as well. And you, you just, you know, you wonder now how many other areas there are around Australia, around the whole country, that has got this potential. And I, and, and I know for a fact in the next decade, there's going to be more fisheries open up for this because the more information that's getting out there now with the fishery and, and the confidence, because that's a big thing. That's, a, that's one of the things I'm you know, investing in a few of the friends and the people that come and do my charters, it's the confidence. Once you've got the confidence in the... You know what you're doing. Yep, you've got the confidence, you know that that works. That's one thing you tick off and you say, right, I don't, I'm not worried whether I'm going to catch a sortie using this technique. Now we need to go and figure out where they are and are they there at that time, you know? And that's, that's... always, you know, at the, in the early days, we were forever questioning, you know, are we doing it right? Have we got a bait set right? Is the bait fresh enough? Oh, is it the right moon phase? Is it, oh, there was just question Because you just sort of, you're a little bit in the dark, I suppose you could say, for want of a better word. And we're sitting there trying to work out what's going on. But I still remember, like, it started kicking off. And, you know, now, what happened when you started down at, it was at Mallacoota, where you were down marlin fishing, weren't you, originally? Because they open up. So for people that don't, Mallacoota is eastern Victoria. And it's always, it's a real hot spot, but we've never had an ocean ramp. I mean, it's an ocean ramp was basically a bit of cement that went into the water, into the they swell. They didn't even have that. It was yeah. all beach launch. So you've got Mallacoota that's, it's a beautiful little spot, but it's one of those really hard spots to, you know, for years and years, you couldn't even fish there properly. You know, the, I think it was when you had to cross the bar or you'd dump yeah, it off the well, it wasn't until like really close friend of mine, Kevin Clark, um, he'd moved up there from Melbourne and, and he raved on, he goes, oh, we're building this ramp, you know, you've got to come down, check it out, you know, 
And prior to that, you know, we'd only ever fish as far south as Eden on the east coast. And once you got sort of down to Green Cape, like that area then was starting to become out of reach. You got a bit of weather, you were a long way from home. And, and there's so much country there east of Gabo Island and all the way around to Lakes Entrance. It's just canyon after canyon after canyon. And it's that right sort of ground. And it wasn't until this ramp had, had opened up. And, and like you said, it was true. It was during marlin season, we were fishing off Eden and that, those currents started pushing those marlin in that water south considerably. And we were doing like, you know, I think the last trip we did was a 60 kilometer run or mile run from from Eden when we, to get on this, this action that we had in the marlin. And the next day was gonna be a bit shittier weather and we'd like, oh, you know, let's go home. And I can remember sitting in the in, the, in one of the diners in Eden in, in about eight o'clock in the morning with Nick. And I looked at the weather, I go, Nick, the weather's nowhere near as bad as what it was said it was gonna be. And I said, I've just got a really good picture on SST and that water's pushed down right in front of Gabo Island. I said, let's go and suss out this ramp at Malakuta and see if we can go and intercept these fish. Now that ramp was newly built by this stage. They put a break wall in, they put, like they spent a bit of money on the ramp. They didn't design it perfectly, but it suddenly gave you access to all these new grounds in Eastern Victoria that we never, we could literally never reach. You could never put a big boat. Like I would never risk putting my boat in prior to this ramp going in. Yep. Like you said, it's not the greatest ramp in the world. It isn't. It's, it's quite treacherous. But you're still time. getting in. But you can launch your boat safely without smashing your boat to pieces. And, um, yeah, so we gave it a crack. We went out and we, we nailed the marlin on that trip. Like, you know, we, we didn't get the boat out on the grounds till about midday by the time we left the cafe. Drove yeah. Made a few calls to Kevin, asked him the state of the ramp and all the rest. No, no, come down. He was real keen. So that just opened my eyes like you would not believe. Like while we were fishing out there, I'm looking at these canyons that I've been wanting to fish for years. And that season, I couldn't get down to Tassie. I couldn't do the Tassie fishery because I'd done this Tassie sword fishery the year before. And we'd really, really fine-tuned a few of the techniques that I'd been playing with for years, but up until then, so far, unsuccessful. And then we, we got some really big swords off Tassie and we, we missed a boatload of them as well, you know, refining the technique. So for me, it was just a natural transition. The nearest ground to the Tasmanian waters that we were fishing was gonna be that corner in Eastern Victoria, that lake's entrance to Malakuta. And so, you know, we made plans to the next time we turned up and we're gonna do the, do the marlin, we, we were gonna come down there, we prepared to throw a sortie bait out if, if the marlin didn't play ball. And that's what exactly, pretty much what happened, didn't it? Yeah, well, I, I, I'll never forget it. Like, um, my mate Julian Coyne um, said, let's go and do the marlin. He goes, I want to invite Lee Rayner. He goes, you know, Lee, Lee, Lee hasn't fished with us before. I want to get yous all together. Yeah. And I said, do you mind if I bring a sortie outfit? No, 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 bring it down. And I'll never forget it. We spent the whole day chasing marlin. We actually hooked one on a lure today, but the bait was completely gone. They were scarce. We hooked one, jumped it off, and... I think it would have been about three o'clock in the afternoon and I said to the boys, I mean, this marlin fishing ain't looking too flash, boys. I said, let, you know, do you want to do a late afternoon sortie drop? Yeah. And then uh, they were all, yeah, everyone was, yep, thumbs up. And we were probably about a good 10 mile from where I wanted to put, put my first bait in. And I said to Lee and Jules, I said, mate, it's a fair way to, to where I want to go. I said, there's a couple of areas here that look yeah. not bad. And they go, no, no, Rich, you go where you where you had your eyes fixed. And you had good weather that day, didn't you? It was glassy. Yeah. So I said, all right, beautiful. 
punched in the GPS, I'd go, Jules, head for that, those set of grounds. And, and I'd already done my homework there. And and in the meantime, running down there, I was setting up baits and getting my... At the time, we, we, it was so makeshift. We had rocks off the break <laughs> as our weights, you know. We were just so unprepared. A duct tape ready to, you know, wrap it all up and everything. And by the time we got there, I was more or less ready to drop our first bait. And... I, you, you couldn't script this. You just couldn't yeah. script this. We dropped down, hit the bottom, and tried to dis, dislodge our bait um, from the from the weight. And we did this little squirt with the boat and give it a bit of a bit of revs and got it up on a plane. And I thought the weight had come off. And I go, yep, yep, stop. The weight's con. You know, we're, the bait's down there. And all of a sudden, this this line's come tight. And I'm like. The weight didn't come off, man. You know, stop again, get ready to start again, and, and we've backed up on it. And my this this rod's loading up, and I'm going, that's that's not the rock, man. The rock didn't pull the rod that hard, and and we've just squeezed up on it. And I I, I reckon we were down for ten seconds, ten seconds maximum. This you're happened. joking. And we were on, we were on. That's All it. these years of doing it, and you put it down, and ten seconds, you've got a daylight we sortie. On. I mean, look, I'd caught I'd caught a daytime sortie off Jarvis Bay. It would have been probably eight years or five years I'm, I'm really bad with time but it would have been something mm-hmm. like about six to seven years before that off Jarvis Bay but really I thought it was a fluke to be honest I thought it was a fluke I fluked it yeah yeah you know I caught that first and, and as far as I know it was probably the first official daytime caught saw I remember on, that on fish remember it tackle, well um, which was the way which we were saying earlier, wasn't it? So she explained that that was the way we're doing. We're out in a thousand fathoms. Yeah. We just drop a bait down and hope for the best, and we catch a fish doing it. So absolutely. So it was a long time between breaks between catching that one, which is only a small fish, it's about forty-one kilo. But it's still, honestly, to me, it's one of my prized fish that I've caught. Like I look at that, I've, I've got it mounted. That you know, I can't even tell you the. The euphoria when that thing come out of the water and I've seen this big bill come out of the water like ah that's a sword or it would have been the same with you guys at night time so a sword's a sword when it's your first sword it doesn't matter matter if it's two kilos or 200 kilos it's a sword it's a sword so you know having this success when we when we hooked up on on the very first attempt off Malakuta like there was no waiting there was nothing you know, it was the last hour of the day we were going to fish anyway, and we would have been hooked up in the first 10 minutes, and we caught that fish, and it went 135 kilos, and that just, that was it. That started everything, you know? Like, we, we grabbed that technique. The next day, we didn't do any marlin fishing at all. We just grabbed my two rods, and we went there, and we caught another two swords the next day, and I think they were 60 and 70 kilos consecutively. And, and from that point on, we just kept fishing ground after different ground after different ground that has come in up on my radar over the years of somewhere I wanted to access. And I, I kid you not, we caught sorties on every single location. It was just mind-blowing. It's like, holy crap, this is like, They're this just- can't be happening. Isn't it? And do you know what I found the most amazing part is it went from literally nothing to everything literally overnight from that first fish you caught, or not the very first one, that first one you caught down there, and then all of a sudden they're everywhere. You're catching swords. Like you said, everyone, yeah, I caught one here. No one over there. Yeah, I caught one there. So all these grounds, we've driven past for all these years, and there's suddenly swordfish everywhere. It's funny how it is, how busy it is down here at the boat show. You can hear all the people talk in the background, and I'm pretty sure they're just cheering us on because they all want to learn about swordfish. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So what happened? So from then, 
then it was at that stage, because I remember coming down with you, so Ian Miller, so Ian Miller makes rods, and he did his apprenticeship over in New Zealand, fishing in that shit god-awful weather over New Zealand. And I remember ringing, I think I'd called a little one off Sydney by then, said, come down, we're down here, you know, down there. So I went with you and Ian, and we're driving out with George as well, and it's dead flat and sunny, and we're going, I'm looking at Ian going, we should be rugged up. We should be freezing cold. He goes, it's so wrong, isn't it? And then we, It was March. Yeah, that it was, was March. March. And it was dead flat and sunny. But I was more worried about it getting sunburned than freezing my ass off in the middle of the night. And I still remember that first one, put it down and... It wasn't bang. even an hour. And we had Ian yeah. hooked up to his first daytime sword. That and he'd done all the years like we had. So that's what I loved about that day that was so special because... We worked so hard over all the years, and everyone wrote, had been, you know, part of those early days where we put up with the shit weather and all the crap, and then all of a sudden, Ian's hooked up to a first. That was his first sword too, because he never caught one during those night times. I don't think, yeah, did he? No, I thought he did. I thought no, he, maybe he did. I, I thought he ended up catching a little one, yes. but don't quote me on that. Yeah, one. Ian, you'll have to get into it and let us know, because he does all those those Miller rods, which he my does God, the sword, they got sword fight. Yeah, sword, sword fight. Is that Ian Miller? Ian Miller Pretty much, you know, and, and it, it's been a combination of him, you know, very rarely do you get a, you know, a rod builder of, of that calibre in, into a brand new fishery where he can get to see firsthand what's required out of a rod and real. Look, we were, I was still using some of my older, stiffer stuff. And he came back with some of those softer so, tips softer and all that. Tip, but really powerful rods that, that we now use today that have caught fish, you know, to 400 kilo and more. That, yeah, without them now, I don't know what we'd do. Like, you know, they've got so much forgiveness, but to have a guy like Ian on the boat and almost design the, the tackle based on his own experiences with us was just, just amazing, you know? And, yeah, that's, that's why we've got what we've got today. But that was, you know, again, a lot of it was chance. Ian was just coming down to see if he can catch a daytime sword and lo and behold, lo and behold he, he catches that first one in the first hour. And then you, you know, you're on strike next, you know. It was, like, yeah, I'll give it a crack, you know. We, we missed one in between time. And that's we, right, we had a bite, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we, we had a bite and we missed one. And, and look, I don't know what's happened since then because we're not getting that many bites these days. But I think it's no different than any other season where we have crappy sword, swordfish seasons, we have crappy marlin seasons, you know, the highs and the lows. They're hot and cold. Yeah, and yeah. I'm sure we're going to have those seasons again. But I'll never forget it, we missed that first one for you. And then later on in the afternoon, we put a dirty, rotten piece of eel. That's right, a freshwater eel. Like, not a fancy, like a conger eel or something, just a dirty freshwater just eel. Just a big tail section of a big, dirty eel. And it, it got bit and it loaded up. And that was the first fish we got over 200 kilo. That's right, it was 201 or 202 yeah, or something like that. it just over, but and we spent four hours on that fish. I remember, because I was thinking about the hooks pulling. And I still remember fighting it, being soft on it, soft on it, and getting it up to the boat because it hit as soon as it hit remember the rod just goes like there was no question we're on yeah. and we got it up to the boat and I remember it it's come up and it's rolled over and went, oh this is a proper fish and I'm leaning on it I thought oh and we gave the gaffs ready to go and remember how and it leaned I thought I'm going to lean back on this and roll that head around so they can get the shot and as I did the fish come around put the gaffs in it secured it and I'm looking going where's the hook and then it's, the hook's hanging out the back and remember it had been hooked in the nose right in the nose socket and then the hook had pulled up over the eye and as I'd pushed back on it we buried the hook into its brain and spiked the damn thing and I remember it just sitting there and it's just stopped on the surface and of course gaffed it and 
And it was only after that we realised what had happened to it. But that brings us to the next part. So what would you recommend for people doing it? You know, it's not easy. I mean, obviously, the ultimate thing is you just get a charter with Richie and and get the feel for it. But what's the basic... The first thing is a decent sounder, I reckon, because you've got to find the ground. It's it's no different than, you know, if you're marlin fishing, if you don't have a decent sounder when you're marlin fishing, a set of outriggers... You're really on the back foot. You really are. Like, you know, there's basic equipment that you need for any kind of fishing that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, for sorties, it is a must. You know, a good quality sounder, and I'm not going to bang on it. Like, I got Furuno in my boat. I've always had Furuno. It's been reliable, but I'm not saying that's the only sound that you have to get. You know what I mean? But- you know what? I'm Furuno as well, but I think the one thing on that side is if you're comfortable with your gear and you can interpret the picture. 100%. Because I know it mine and go, that's a marlin, that's a kingfish, that's a shark. You can read that different thing. Even to the point now, the other day, and this is just digressing for a second, we've had massive problems with leather jackets off Sydney. They are these little yellow Chinaman ones inshore. But you can pick them on the sounder straight away and go, they're not slimies, they're not yakkers, they're leather jackets because the way they show up. Now, I reckon all the other Santa brands could probably do it as well, but you'd look at mine straight away and go, I know how my, you know, Furuno works, that's not the fish I'm looking for. And it's the same, and it's probably more critical when you're doing it 600 metres down because you, it's even harder it to read that picture. It's time on the water. You know it, I know it, everyone that spends time on the water knows it. It's time on the water. You know that they're leather jacket because you've identified it in the past, you know what I mean? It's no different than someone running one of the other units out there it'll just come down to identifying what targets are coming on your screen and how you're marking them. Some, some are marked, so I see other units that mark them really faint, but you can see them. As long as you can see them, you know, it doesn't really matter how you see them. But, you know, when it comes to swordfish, definitely a great sounder. Unfortunately, a lot of the grounds that we fish are so far offshore, you need to have a decent boat as well, you know. Especially, and that's important. So for everyone listening to this podcast, the big area that Richie's fishing now is Bass Canyon. So that's part of Bass Strait or the eastern end of Bass Strait, which you've got Tasmania to the south and Victoria. And it's one of the biggest submarine canyons. I think it's 80 miles across Um, or something. As far as I know, it's the biggest underwater canyon in the world. And I mean, it is massive. It's like a hundred miles across. It drops down to I think four thousand meters or something. Oh, stu- it it's, goes to stupid. It's yeah. massive, and it's in an area that can be incredibly rough. It can be awesome at times, but it can be shit. So fishing these grounds, and when you've really only got two major ports you can fish from, can't you? you can yeah, Lakes Entrance or Malakuta. That's it. Yeah. So you're talking thirty plus miles minimum to to the edge of the canyon. So not even to the grounds you're fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. So, and there is a safety thing there that a lot of guys just brace out because they hear that, you know, as soon as you started catching swords, every man, dog and child, best friends, you know, are all racing out there. But it's not something you just cruise out and do. You've got to be prepared. You've got to know the waters. And on top of that, you launch out Malakut, you've got to cross the bar. And at, sorry, at um, Lake's entrance, you've got to cross the bar. And at Malakut, well, you really almost have a bar there too, don't you? Well, it's not Com- considered as a bar. It's an ocean ramp. So we don't have a we don't have an estuary system that you're getting out of, like, say... So it's know, not like, tidal as such, yeah. It, it, but you know what? In all, in all intended purposes, it is needs to be respected it's, and considered as a bar like anything. It's an ocean ramp and it's not labelled as a bar, but it can get as treacherous as a bar. Yeah, the sand it, builds up there. And, you know, you have waves coming across that front, you know, and unfortunately one of the local boats came to grief only a few days ago there. And, and, and he knows the waters oh, too. This, He's guy, a- this guy's lived in Malakuta most of his life. He works out of there. He's an abalone diver. I'm not going to mention names. 
but this but guy's as ex- he's as experienced as it comes when it comes to fishing out of Malacuta. And if someone like that can come unstuck, anybody can come unstuck. And that's the one thing you said it. It's respecting the water, and you know, don't be gun ho with it. These are serious. You're doing big distances and it's dangerous because it's fairly remote areas and people just need to respect it and go down and have a look first. If you're crossing the bar, you know, if you're doing it out of lakes entrance, get it on a run-in tide so you get it smooth. If you've got a massive sea going, don't go if it's too rough. And anyway, down there you can't run out when it's rough because no, it's 40 bloody miles. It's too far. Even like I, I've, got, I've got the 3000 series Noosa Cat, which is probably the best ocean boat that I've ever been in on a trailer. And I wouldn't even attempt to do some of those trips out when, when it, it's crappy weather. It's just, it just smashes you, you know. Like it is. It's, it's such a big day out there. You don't like, especially for my clients. Like, I've made it an art form now to study this weather. Like, and most of the times I get it right. Thankfully, the, you know, the weather forecast yeah, absolutely. is pretty good. But most of my fishing trips out there, like, I try not to call it any, you know, any closer than three days, you know. Like... I wouldn't try and say a week in advance that we're going to get if we can have a look and the pattern starting to work in our favour. But I wouldn't even make the call to some of my clients until we were about three or four days out to, to get a feel for it because it changes so quickly. Now you started doing it as charters after that, didn't it? Dream, Dreamcatcher charters. Now what was your name? The film Prime Time. It's just come just, to me. I, I just saw you looking up. John, you got John, excited. John Gregory. John Gregory. Just had a light bulb moment. Prime Time Charters John, New Zealand. John Gregory. Yes. There so we go. He was the man back then, and and I'm sure he's had some people come in from from under him and and, and doing things as well. But what about you? Because you decided. So as long as I've known you back in the early days of marlin fishing, always wherever the fish were, we always bumped into each other. You know, it was just. <laughs> it's amazing how. Mullen on, yep, there's the same crowd. You know, Sammy Musket, the early days, would all be the same blokes. And then they're down the coast. Oh, there's everyone again, you know, move up and down. And then with the swords and everything, everyone sort of, you know. But you started now. When did you start doing Dreamcatcher? It was only like, I, I had the original Dreamcatcher, which was my first Noosa Cat, which unfortunately went over in a, in a bad road accident, you know, about, oh, I think it was about five years ago now. And I had that boat for 15 years. That was a great boat. And it's... It's Can like, I just say, for people that don't know, that that boat looked like it was brand new after 15 years. I sat there and watched that boat for 15 years. It did not deteriorate. I've never met someone that cleans their boat as well as you do because that boat was immaculate. For all the fishing you did, it wasn't like it sat in a garage. No, no. It fished all over the place and it was absolutely perfect. Oh, that boat's been down south to the bottom of Tassie. It's been up as far up north as Townsville and Flinders Reef out, out on the Coral Sea. Oh, I've done some miles. I've got some memories in that boat. So what happened then? So you decided, so you got the new well, boat. I had an opportunity. Like, it, the charter thing has always been in the back of my mind. But, you know, it's the expense of coming out. You know, is this going to be a right choice? Is, you know, it's always been a passion. That's, that's, that, I'd, I'd probably recreational, fished recreationally as hard as most charter boats did anyway. I'd say harder, mate. Let's yeah. just be honest. You fished a lot harder. Come on, let's just be straight well, honest here. Let, let's just say I lost a few jobs in the construction <laughs> industry because of fishing. But anyway, and um, it was just, it was like a do or die moment, you know? Like, what do I do? Do I, you know, do I get the money from the insurance um, from the accident and just put it into another boat that's going to do the same job as the one I had? Or do I go all out and get get a charter boat, get get something and, and, and follow this passion of mine and make it, see if I can make a living out of it, see if I can turn it into some a new way of life, you know, something different. Get out of the electrical trade and, and I did, you know. And here we are, like it's it's you know, it's three years on now. 
I made the boat for four, but I didn't really do anything in the first year. Um, I had the boat built to survey with the intent of, you know, possibly doing a fair bit of wreck work with it as well as the charter thing. Now it's pretty much full-blown charter boat. We are, and, it, and it's not just sword, swordfish or what you're iconic about, but before that, you're a gunner catching big jumbo bluefin and, of course, marlin as well. So you're catching the big three when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, well, marlin's been like... The, at, from the early days, marlin's been at the forefront. That was my passion. Like, I lived and breathed marlin fishing. Like, I just couldn't get enough of it. And then, you know, the big the big bluefin, you know, I'd never forget when I, you know, back before we had such a great fishery here in Victoria, and who knows how long that fishery's been there. Again, that's that's a bit of a mystery in, in, term, in itself, you know. Like, now we've got the information's there. We know that a lot of these big ones are inshore rather than on the shelf, you know. How many times have we been driving past them over the years? You know what I mean? That's so, a funny thing, and that's just for all fishing. I used to think the further out I go, the more fish I catch. Now, some of the biggest fish are right on my bloody doorstep. I've driven yeah, past them all those years. It's incredible. Like, you know, and well, you, you sometimes just you kick yourself that you weren't smart enough 20 years ago. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, don't. All those fish were there, and I drove straight past you know the bloody I mean? things. And it's like... But yeah, definitely the marlin. Look, I did my apprenticeship and I always say, you know, I learned how to catch those big tuna in Tassie. Tassie was an apprenticeship for me. I had to work around rocks, you know. It teaches you resilience and, and how to stick to your guns and work an area until those, you know, you work those fish out when they're going to come into the zone, when they're leaving the zone, what makes them come in the zone. And the sorties have been exactly the same. Like, there's no difference. It's just... This, what's been a bit more mind-blowing about the sorties is it's just we never had it. It's never been there. We've never had a fishery. We've never had a season where we can say, hey, from this month to that month, we've got a red-hot chance of catching a swordfish. If, like, if there was a swordfish caught in Australia, every game fisherman knew about it because most of the time it was a chance encounter. It was a, it was a bycatch of something else. It was very rarely someone's gone out to catch a sword because the guys that did go and chase swords very rarely got them and they were look not saying that nobody got them but and at night but there was there was some guys that that caught a few and they made their reputation at night time like i said the the bruce libbers yeah on rathlin yeah, yeah. Rathlin, and i fished one night with him down there it was horrific with tim simpson in those days he's working at complete angler and chris Beatty from complete angler and greenie used to work right for the fishing mags as well it was, it was like a 35 knot southerly came through. It was rocking and rolling. We wouldn't even told if we, couldn't even tell if we had a bite. Like it was just, <laughs> and you couldn't pay me to, people go, oh, do you ever fish at night for swords? Nah, never. Daytime you know forever. I, yeah, look, some of the nights we go out, well, some of the days we go out now, we're leaving the grounds at night and I, I, it is like a sheet of glass. You're just sitting and there I, going. And mm. I can tell you right now, if I had probably, a liverboard option on my boat a little bit better than what it is there'd be nights i'd be tempted to stay out there march in particular because you get some of those warm nights in march but i still start those motors and go back to my bed <laughs> <laughs> no, no more nights no more nights in the water you know and, and if someone if you've got passengers that aren't super seaworthy night time's gonna make them sick well that's the other thing because people don't realize that at night you get bloody sick it just you know if you get a little bit during the day by the night, man, you are going. It's just hot to trot. Now, tell us, so let's go through a few basics without letting go of the secrets. Because remember, at the end of the day, you got a charter boat. So if they want to do it, they've got to go and book up Dreamcatcher too. But 
for what's your base? So let's start with the hooks. Circles or J's? Oh, that is the debate of all debates. I have used both and I have had such poor results on the circle hooks and it yeah, it was just a transition for me. Look, I, I respect a lot of the guys that were doing it internationally before me. If you look at the Stanzik family, they're all running J's. Every single one of them running J hooks. There's guys in New Zealand that are having great results with circle hooks. I can safely say that I used both and used every bit of experience that I've had with my marlin fishing, which, you know, we've got a good 95, 90 to 95% hookup rate on circle hooks on marlin when, you know, you've got an experienced angler on the rod. I was hoping to use that sort of strike rate on these swords, but it wasn't to be. I can't even tell you how many fish we dropped in those first two years on circle bait rigs, you know. To me, I find it so confusing that they're like a billfish. They should come up, they whack it a couple of times. It's not swimming away, so it's pretty easy to eat. They should eat it. But they seem to take forever to eat it. And for the life of me, I've hooked fish there. And there was that time we were fishing down at Malakuta. We hooked up, you came over, fought it for an hour and a half on a circle. Mate, this is it. You're ready to get the photos. And then the hooks pull. You never get that with a marlin. So, and the problem is it's 600 metres down. So what are they doing down there? And everyone, like you said, everyone's got a theory. It's bloody frustrating sometimes. Well, look, I've spent a lot of time studying, you know, the do's and don'ts. And I've made my fair share of mistakes as well. And we're still evolving now. Like, make no mistake, you know, two years from now, I'll probably be doing something different. Um, But their whole mouth structure is, even though they've got a bill and they're a billfish, they're so different to a marlin. Yeah. They're just... They're all cartilage, you know. They haven't got that bone structure around their, around their mouth. Their, their top jaw and bottom jaw don't, don't close together. The, the top jaw and the, and the bill section overlap the bottom jaw by a considerable amount. So you couldn't oh. even roll a circle hook in there if you wanted to. Um, plus the bill of the swordfish goes well into the mouth cavity. And, and so there's no soft spot there. No, it's right it's down there. Yeah. Soft spots, but, but it's it's limited. You haven't got the whole mouth structure like you have with a marlin. You can hook a marlin anywhere in there. With a swordy, you can't. And it and just so you know it, it makes it really tough. And look, like I said, there's some guys that are claiming some really good success with with circle hooks. I haven't had that success. All of my success has been with jays and double jay hooks. Um, I have caught a couple on, on circles, but we've lost a lot in the process. So, and that, there's an important part there that, that you sort of touched on, is that people, sh- the jury's still out. So in two years, if we did the same, and if you, like you said, it may be totally different. I know what I do as a giant, a circle, I do this, or do that. It changes. And that's the important part with fishing is you, you've got to keep coming up with new ways and keep trying and never go, this is the only way. There's always a better way. And that's like people like yourself have always been good at fishing because you try one, then you try something different and then you keep evolving and keep going, well, that actually works really well. So if I do that with that, and that's probably one thing I think with swordfish. So we're still a long way from finding out uh, the, you know, the right thing. The good thing about it now is there's much more people getting involved too. So now you can cross-reference information. Now we're talking between ourselves. Now I can bounce information off other people. I'm not the only one doing it. You know what I mean? And, and sometimes it's good to get a perspective from someone else, even if it's someone that hasn't got the experience. Mm. Sometimes they might tr- say something or experience something that might trigger something in your head to go, oh, okay, okay. And that might, oh, hang on, link that to that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it never, it never changes. I mean, if you go back to 
the fish we caught with Lee at the first time out of Malacuda and, and how I fish then to how I fish now, it's chalk and cheese. Mm. It's chalk and cheese. Like we've fine tuned so much of it now. Like we've become very efficient in what we do. We've got baits in the water all the time. You know, we, we're rolling and recirculating. We know where we're fishing. We know our drifts. We know everything in that respect. So this is an important part that you're... So when we go marlin fishing, you get out early, put the gear in, you're fishing all day. But with sword fishing, you've got... It's take, it could take 20 minutes, half an hour for the baits to get to the bottom. That They're not fishing as effectively. You've got getting to the grounds, you've got sounding around where you're not fishing to find the bait. So when you're actually sword fishing, your actual time of fishing with baits in the zone is a lot less because it's a lot more. And that's where that preparation is obviously really important so that you don't drive out and go, oh, I might just rig a bait up, I'll have a look around. It's like, no, no, getting here, there's a fish, bang. Because especially now with the days getting a bit shorter, there's less time in that day to there's actually make it happen. time in the day. And like, you know, places like Malacuta where, you know, a lot of times I won't go out in the dark. You know, I need to see that entrance. If it's going to be flat... That's a I'm safety going, thing, yeah. yeah. I've gone out the day before and it's like a lake and we've got the right tide. Yeah, I'll, I'll venture out when it's darkness. But any other time, like, we've got to get a bit of light there and then I'll go out. So you're already chipping into your day. And you've got the run to the grounds, which could be an hour, two hours out well, to the bloody grounds. Minimum an hour and 40 minutes, you know. If you're going to fang it, you might get there 15 minutes quicker. But, you know, you're looking at an hour and a half to two hours, depending on what sort of sea you're going to get. And, um, and you've got the same coming home. And this is why now I never go out sortie fishing without, you know, an esky full of rigged, already pre-made baits, you know what I mean? Back in the day, we'd rig baits in the boat, and, you know, if we didn't have a bait ready or, you know, we, you know yeah. you'd be rushing to get this bait ready. No, no, we, we're out there, we've got baits ready, we've got rigs ready. Every, with every effort to minimise downtime is taken. And this is, for everyone listening to this, this is the really important part. And this is what makes Richie catch more fish. It's not the fishing, it's the preparation. So you're fishing more, isn't it? That's it. It's all about... Look, you know what? That goes goes with every fishing we do. From trout to marlin to... Every fishing we do. Like, you know, as an example only, you know, when you're marlin fishing, you know, you, you... you can you can hook up a couple of outfits and, and get get nails smashed by a few fish and then all of a sudden boom there's a bait ball there if you haven't got another couple of rods ready and everything ready you've got live baits in that's the it tank, the tuna tubes you're not you're not ready to to capitalize on that really little hot bite that you're just about to have and that's really important because all of a sudden it's all there and you're sitting there with no rods and you see that all the time with guys going oh hang on i'll get rigged up and it's like, no, everything's ready to go. Right, there it is, bang. And it's, I think what that is, it's maximising on every opportunity. So if you get out, my theory is if you get out and you've got 10 hours in a day, if you're fishing 10 hours, you're maximising every bit. If you're fishing six hours, five hours, four hours, three hours, because you're spending all that time rigging or whatever you're doing, you're wasting so much potential time because you haven't got a bait in the water, you can't catch a fish, can you? Absolutely. And, 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 I'll, and I'll, I'm, I'm the king of milking time. I'm the king. I will milk it like to the last second if I can. If I, if I think we've got a chance to catch a fish or we, you know, we've had a slow, slow day and you know, there's a possibility of, of me getting a fish on that last drop even though we're running out of time. There's always one more. It's always there. I'm, I'm the king of milking it, man. Just honestly. so we're just doing it, I've just dropped my mic and Richie's just trying not to laugh while he's looking at me <laughs> because I've lost my little clip for it and now it won't sit in where it's meant to and it's... 
I swear the clip was here, and he's trying not to laugh, going, yep, I've fished with this idiot. And you talk about preparation, this is how to prepare. Look at this, I'm going to wrap it round twice. It's going around the button. It's going around the button twice. I've taken the tape off the top of the bloody... The, the, the mic that's meant to match it up to the other one. So my camera crew are going to crack it next time we go out and film. Oh. It's probably scratching and squeaking all the way I through here. The first time. There we go. go. Uh, where's the hole? This is what got me in trouble in the first place. I didn't. I found the hole and look what happened. All right. Now that's probably scratched. Everyone's going. They're worried about all the people talking in the background for being at the boat show. But no, instead it's me bloody getting disorganised. Oh there we go. Look at that. Yeah, that I might even put a photo of that on social because it's just bloody stupid. <laughs> oh, that's going to have to do. Hang it out. Pull it out. That's what got me in real trouble. There, there, there we go. We'll pull it up to the... Oh, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Here we go. Here we go. So this is all the professionalism of what to do and what not to do. Oh, my God. Look at that. I've done it. Oh. oh, that's perfect now. So I'm even taking a photo for social media just to show how bad I am at these things sometimes. <laughs> so right here. So we've done, we'll get back to being serious. So what about with rigs? So what would you suggest there? So circles and J's, I, I reckon, correct me if I'm wrong, the best advice is we want everyone trying everything because there is still no proven technique. Oh, and you know, the good thing is there is plenty of guys down here now running circles and, and running them with success. And, and, I, and we will bang heads together and have a chat. And look, they still miss their fish as well. And I still miss mine. Look, you know, last season I had a cracker run. With, you know, I, I had probably a better than 80 80 percent conversion oh really yeah last season was great like you know we didn't have heaps of bites but we converted most of them this season i've had more bites and we haven't converted nowhere near as many i'm probably down to about 40 percent this season you know we drop in quite a few do you know what and i know it's terrible the one thing i love about fishing it's a sport you can never master how many times you're going to go, I've got it, this is it, it's sorted. Oh, I, know I had it nutted last year, mate. You told me this year I was and waiting for a hot boy. And you just screw it up. You go out and go, that's it, this is it. And you go out and everything's perfect, everything exactly right, and you don't catch anything. You get slapped in the face by a bloody cold fish. And I love it because you can't master it, but you keep learning at it. And that's the thing. There's no perfect way you could always improve. It's the challenge of that, that you know, that's that's... As frustrating as it is, and I mean, not more than four or five days ago, I had a really good can skipper on board, and he had a couple of guys, and we got a nice fish that day, but damn, we got two other bites that day. They were red-hot, proper swordfish bites. We got the fish on. We had both fish on for probably five minutes and fighting, and both of them come off. And I'm like scratching my head, and like, we're all, you know, you couldn't, you scratch your head thinking, there's not really a whole lot more I can do with what we did, you know. Give them plenty of time to eat, or you don't give them plenty of time to eat. If you give them too much and you miss him, you say you gave him too much. If you don't give him enough and miss him, you it's, say you should have let him go a little bit longer. It's that old it's, thing, is it? That old analogy that it's too much, too little, but whatever it is, we're still... Well, one of the things, he, like, it was good. He, he actually described it really good. And I, and I said, I'm going to pinch that off him. And they are a messy eater. They are a messy eater. So this is why I don't reckon we're ever going to get really to the, to down to fine-tuning it to perfection yeah. like we do at Marlin because these things are a messy eater. They come in, they slash at your bait, they come in aggressively really hard, which is why we have foul hook quite a lot of them at mm-hmm. times. And so waving that, smashing that bill yeah, round. Oh, and, yeah, well, yeah. you think about it a lot. You know, 
We've dropped a bait a half a kilometre under the water. Yeah, it's a long way down, isn't it's it? It's a long way down. There's a lot of belly in the line, yet we still see this prominent jerk of the rod tip, right? And he ain't eating it. He's not eating the bait. He's only merely hitting it. How hard do you have to hit a bait, right, to make a, a, a reaction a half a kilometre away on the rod tip without actually pulling the bait and swimming off with it? He's only hitting it. You know what? That's a bloody good call. Because you think of that. You stand half a K away, 500 metres. I can barely see you that far away, let alone actually talk or do anything. And yet he's building it and you're feeling it and seeing it at at the other end. And you've got water and everything else, all these other things to to soften the blow, so to speak. They're mean little bastards down there, aren't they? They are. Look, I've I've been, I've had them both side where we've, you know, gone to take a photo and there's only been like, you know, 10 centimetres between my arm and the side of the boat and they've given that little jab and they nearly snapped my wrist. Like, you know, the power they generate with the little slightest flick of the bill, I'd hate to get hit by one that's just gone full whack, you know? Oh, the, the... They're unreal. So what about what about with the fighting side? Oh, well, firstly, one rod or two? Or three I rods? I or... two rods these days. I could possibly fish three. Um, I know. Is that because you're refining your technique yes, to the point yeah. where, because tangles are issue with not just with the gear tangling well, you've up. You've got half a kilometre of line in the water, and you've got you're only got the tiny little boat to set them. So, you know, it's quite easy to get tangles if you don't know what you're doing. Like without letting everything out, I fish with two rods. I could easily fish with three if I wanted to, but we fish very effectively with two. If you go back to our early days of fishing, we were fishing with one. We, you know, we were catching fish <laughs> just fishing with one, and look. If you're new at it, maybe start with one. You know what I mean? And try and refine your technique a bit. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So what about with, say, running two rods and you're starting it, you know, you're fishing over the grounds. How long do you keep your baits in the water for? Do you, do you put them down to leave them and go to sleep? What, what's, no, what, def- def- baits def- are in? Def- what do you reckon? Like baits, baits are in. Like, you know, you, you said something about half an hour. It's probably not half an hour setting up. Like, a bait will roughly take around... You know, depending on how much weight you've got, anything between five and eight minutes to hit Oh, okay, so it's quite quick when yeah, it gets yeah, down, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you're running two of them. Feels so like forever. I sit there drinking coffee. Like <laughs> it doesn't honestly feel like forever. Um, so you get, you know, but you, between two baits, that's, you know, somewhere around 15 to 18 minutes to get both baits down and fishing. You've got the first one and then you deploy your second one. And it's a million-dollar question. It all really comes down to what what's happening there on the canyon or wherever you're fishing like there's other fish there there's not just sorties and and you hope that there's other fish there because the sorties are there to eat them like lately we're getting annihilated by squid and and other crap oh really yeah baits aren't lasting more than sort of half an hour and you're bringing them up and you can't reuse that bait that's cut off just chewed up and a really well-rigged bait that you spend 15 minutes rigging up is just demoralized some ungrateful little bugger of a squid has chewed the hot the arse out of it, basically. So go, and then go back, say, four weeks ago, or you know, more. In the beginning of April, when I when I went out and did my first charter in the beginning of April, we did not lose a single tentacle on a squid or any other bait for that matter for three days. You could run that same bait, right? There wasn't even a nick or a bite out of it. But you know, four or five <laughs> weeks on, and. Your baits aren't lasting more than half an hour because the squid have moved in. It's different yeah. It's just the same as there's different currents come through on exactly. the surface. It's the same with this underwater structure. We can't actually see it down there, but it's definitely happening. And you and I can start to see it on the sounder 
which and goes back to what we said before about interpreting that picture. 100%. And I see it on the sounder. Mm. As well as that, it translates on, you know, what you're seeing with the bait. So if I'm, if I'm doing a one-hour drift and in an hour I pull back that bait and it's just destroyed, well, my next drift will be half an hour before I change baits just to see what condition my baits are in, you know, when I pull them up. And if they're okay, then I then I sort of fluctuate between that time. If you know, in an hour, there's nothing that's touched my bait. Well, I know I'm good to go. That I can leave it an hour and a half. Mm. It, it, and again, it comes down to drift, current. I know the country I'm fishing in. If my boat is still in good country, like I might drift up onto the higher part of the canyon wall, and to me, I'm going to be out of my preferred zone. Yep. I'll pull the pin even 40 minutes into the drift. But if I'm drifting, that drift's taken me along a zone in that canyon where I know I'm, I'm in that, I'm in the hunt, I'm in the zone, I'm in the right area. I'll, I'll sit and fish a couple of baits out in, in, on that drift without even picking up and moving. You know, yeah. it all comes down to exactly what you said, identifying what you're seeing and, and checking your baits, making a decision and just going from there. And that's it. So you've got your baits down, you've done your time. What about with the hookup and, you know, there seems to be no set way. Do you leave it, let it eat it? Do you wind it up, let it play with it? Do you, or you just, there's still, again, it's just so like the hook. Look, we have our textbook bites. You know, we always refer to, to you know, certain bites, whether it be marlin tuna as a textbook bite, you know. And there are definitely textbook sortie bites. And, you know, very, like, we've learned to identify a swordfish bite, you know, within the first mm. two seconds of the bite, you know, and we're very much almost 95% on the money that it's a swordfish. We'll catch it most of the time or miss it. So it's quite a distinct bite, isn't it? It's a very distinct bite compared to other fish down there. Um, when, when you know, there's a lot of other critters down there and, and, and that a swordfish bite on the tip of the rod is a very deliberate bounce of the rod tip. You might get a double bounce, but generally the double bounce will probably be because the, the line or some, some other part of the fish has brushed past as he's given that a Ah, swipe. so he's hit it, and as it goes down the bodies, he's swimming yeah, forward. Because yeah. they can't turn around. That's the other no, thing. They no. can't spin around and well, hit it again. They can spin around, but it won't be that quick. You won't yeah. get that double. So most of the time, it's the it, it's a prominent single jab on the rod tip, and, and you really got to be watching it to see it. But they'll turn around. Most, in most cases, they'll turn around and give it another one. And, and we do definitely tease them. Um, we'll pull that bait away from it and, and see what happens. Um, if I had to give an example of a, of, of a bite that's not a swordfish, whenever I've got clients on board, you know, more eyes are better than one. So I've always got them watching the outfit and I'll tell them what a swordfish bite looks like and I'll tell them what a bottom fish bite or crappy fish bite, mm. anything that's not a swordfish to me is a crappy fish bite, by the way. Everything's um, crappy compared to swordfish. They are the ultimate. That's it. And so usually all your bottom feeders that are going to annihilate your bait, they, they'll hit the rod and the rod will bounce in a pulsating fashion and it'll mm. continue to bounce. And if you pull that bait away, you know, drag it 20 metres away, most cases it will stop. That, that fish will not want to get too far out of its comfort zone. Oh, really? Yeah, and it won't, won't swim up from the bottom and expose itself to other predators. So yeah, it'll leave call. the bait alone. A swordfish, however, won't. A swordfish will keep following that bait up. If he wants it, he'll whack it for 100 metres up. Yeah, because he's like one of the big predators. He's pretty much at the top of the... He's the yeah. king, of the, king of the world down there. That's right. And, and, 
And they, oh, look, I've had swordfish nail my bait for up to 10 minutes before they decided to eat it. And I'll tell you right now, if I, if I, actually, if I actually didn't catch the fish, I'd still be scratching my head wondering if that oh, was really? actually a swordfish. But, you know, 10 minutes, you've got a fish whacking it and whacking it and whacking it. And then all of a sudden it, it commits and eats it and swims off. And, it, you know, you catch yourself a swordfish, you just wonder, what are these things doing? They're just playing around. It's almost like... It's a territorial bite, like, you know, who yeah. are you? You're in my zone. What are you? Whack, whack. And then eventually they decide to eat it. So what about, so the fight, it's a tough fight with them. Probably one thing worth talking about is boat side because they're big fish and unlike a marlin, that the bill's not sharp. It's a swordfish. Some of those swords, if they start throwing that bill around, which is actually a lot longer than a, a marlin bill, like it's a third of the body length or something. Oh, they're a metre and a half long at the best, at the, at the, at the minimum. So what, what's, what's your advice at that side? Because you get one of these things, both side, he's a bit aggro. Man, there's some serious they're potential. They're really hard to control, I must admit. We, we satellite tagged one only about a week and a half ago, and it was a big girl. Like, you know, we'd, we'd caught one only days before that we killed, and, and that went 252 kilos. So I had a really good gauge and size, and this mm. thing was way longer than her, and it was just as fat. So, you know, I, I call her, I'm always under calling fish, but she was a big girl. You know, I, I would have given it, you know, definitely a, a good 280 kilo. And look, she was healthy. We accidentally fell, hooked it in the peck fin. And it was a good candidate to stick a satellite tag in, you know, find out all we can about this. The more, more pieces we fit to this puzzle, we might be able to sort of start unlocking some of the things that we don't know about these fish. Do you know what? And this is the great part. And every podcast I do, I harp on it. It's the anglers, the fishermen that are going out there and volunteering their time for science to help learn about these fish. You don't get it through locking places up. Like all these greenies go, we need to lock it up. We're going to lock that up. You don't lock it up. You can't lock it up because you don't know what you're protecting. But if you put a satellite tag in that fish and learn where he goes and whether they're spawning down south, so the area you do need to look after, or they're up north, wherever, wherever it is, it's that research or understanding of the fish's behaviour that, to me, is so important to looking after it. Most, most responsible fishermen, and I say most, not all, because there's irresponsible people in every walk of life there is. Right? 100%. But most responsible fishermen are the biggest conservationists I know. Without fail, because we love, we love the fish, and we want every fisherman want lots of fish. You don't want to go out there and catch one swordfish no, a year. You want to catch not. twenty, and if you catch twenty, you want forty. So we want more and more. And to me, that's a really important part of it. So here you are catching them, and and you, you notice what I found is as soon as you catch a big swordfish, because it's a big fish, you get a lot of grief. Yet a big swordfish may just be ten years of age. Yet a snapper or a silver trevally could be 20, 30, 40 years of age. Someone will go and give you a hard time on social media, Karen, about killing a big fish. It's a young fish in, compared to the stuff they're killing. Most of these people are so uneducated in, in their responses and I, I actually don't even bother anymore with them. It I, is, I, it's, it's you frustrating. Try, like, you can try and educate to a degree, um, but you know, if you're coming from a perspective where you're ignorant, then you're never ever going to... You know, understand what it's all about, where it's coming from. If, if you if you see commercial catches, and good on the commercial fishermen, it has to be commercial fishermen. You know, they they make a living just like I do off off the water. You know, and they don't publicise stuff on social media. They, their stuff just goes straight from the the dock to the co-op to the market. You never ever see. It doesn't matter. They catch big fish, small fish, quantities. Of you know fish. what? And that's a interesting one. I went out and fished with Shane Ralph, who runs Jordan Kate, and you know. 
we didn't get along because we were a wreck, he was commercial. And I said, I want to learn how you do it. I said, my opinion, I want to know what you do before I disagree with it. Talked him into it. And to this day, our best of friends, and he is exactly like us. He loves the fish. The same passion. Yes, they're making money off it and they got to work it. But he's letting small swordfish go because they're not the right ones. He's tagging fish for but fisheries. Our, That's, they're they're part of blessed, it. We are blessed, okay? As fishermen, you, me, we are blessed. And, and, and like the older I get, the more appreciation I get for what we catch and what we eat. And, and I really look after the fish. Everything from tuna to swordfish. Whatever fish I catch, even if it's snapper in Port Phillip Bay, I'll make sure I've got an ice box full of ice. I don't slap them in a box, you no. know. And I don't know, maybe it's me being, you know, in the industry for, for that long. But, you know, these, these guys, well, not these guys, the general public that haven't got boats, that can't go out and do what we're going to do, without these commercial fishermen, they've got no means of eating any fish yeah. of that calibre. So, you know... Well, no, we you, need to no. hang on, I've got this sorted. Together. I've got this sorted. It's like I got the swordfish off you today because I haven't caught one yet. So <laughs> I got, see, for everyone, I went and stole <laughs> his fish. I rang up and said, oh, Rich, you know, you come in the boat show, just bring a little bit of swordfish in. Sue said, no, don't, just show me where the car is, I need the swordfish. <laughs> so you need a friend like Richie if you're not catching them. Oh, I've got, <laughs> got friends I didn't know in the last couple of weeks. Oh, my God. But on another side, like looking after them is such an important part because if you kill a fish and eat it, you've got to look after it. But one thing just as closing, now, firstly, your photography is exceptional as well. You're a bloody good skipper, but let's just close on your unreal photos that you do because that's the other side of the passion for not just catching them, but getting those swordfish photos and you know, sword jumping. How many people in the world have got those? Well, you are some of the biggest reason that I am so into photography now. Like, you know, I've... As much as people look up to me for some of the things that I do and, and, and lead the way in that, I've got my own people and you're one of them, Al. Like, honestly, you've opened a door to my journalism, you know. If it wasn't for you putting a word in for me with Blue Water Magazine going back eight, nine years ago now, I, you know, I would never have thought to start writing articles. I didn't think I could, you know. Now, this, year, this many years on, I've written for several magazines and, you know, the photos and stuff have come as a natural transition. I've I've grown this appreciation for what we catch. Like, beyond that day's fishing, all you've got are the memories of that. And if, if, you've never, if you haven't taken the time to capture it on photos or video properly, it's only in your head. You know what I mean? And, and in your head it fades. But when you've got this great photo and, and, and you see the smiles on people's faces, and one of the things I love to do, and my clients hate it at that time because I... They feel like they're in a movie studio, you know, move this, hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull it up, turn it yeah, around. turn it around, hang on. Hold it there for just a moment or hang on, let me wash that little bit of blood off. Like, you know, you, I've learned actually a lot through the photography that you do and, and learning from the example of others that, you know, what looks good in a photo, what doesn't look good, how, how to capture those angles. And it's all about capturing the moment and, and, and seizing that, that, trying to capture what was happening there in, in its pristine form, not a bloodbath of... Yes, you know, absolutely. Of, you know, like I, I don't like throwing stones at people, each to their own, what you do in your boat's your but, business, but when I see all Make these an photos effort, of yeah. like, it looks like a, oh, you know, 
it is infuriating to me that such a beautiful fish, there's just that lack of respect, just holding it and bloody and stuff. Clean it up, make it look awesome. My clients love it. When I come in and I'm coming home and I show them some of the pics that I've got and they're like, oh, wow. You know, I'm, I'm taking the time to turn the boat whilst the fish is in the water on the ropes so that the sun hits it in the right angle. You get you that know? glistening light yeah, coming off it. Yeah, it's not always possible. Sometimes it's too rough, you know. It, there's a lot of factors that play against you, but I'm learning as I go as well. And, you know, I got, you know I've had four cover shots and magazines now, and that's, like I said, I, I hold credit to you and, and some of the tips that you've given me, as well as two cover shots on the Australian Fishing Journal as well. So, you know, obviously other people are liking what they see as well. It is. I'll vouch for it 100%. Now, where can they see it? So you've got Instagram? I'm on Facebook. Um, so I've got two... I've got Richard Abella, yep. so it's under my name, my personal. It started as a personal page, not really a personal page anymore. Everyone's on there, don't worry. Everyone's on there. But I started the business page, which is Dreamcatcher 2 Sports Fishing. Now, I think people get a bit lost looking for it these days because 2 is like a Roman numerals. Uh, oh, see, yeah? that's the thing. And everyone I don't knows. like the number 2, so that's if you ever want to look me up on, on Facebook. And the same for Instagram, it's Dreamcatcher 2 Sports Fishing. So, now, but what about the website as well? Because you've got that coming out. The website's coming. So. It's, 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 it's in the process. I've been very slack with that. and that's just Because you've been fishing and at bloody boat shows like this. You've heard all the commotion in the background <laughs> for us. We've had people doing zips next to us. We've had people talking while we're trying to do an interview. Oh Welcome God. to boat show interviews. Uh, but it's been good and, and it's all part of it, you know. It's, it's hectic. It's hectic. And I've got a guy, you know, um, in, in Bali, Chad Egan, and I, I put up his page um, only a few days ago that's, that's building my website and, and hopefully I'll move into the new era of websites as well. So slowly, slowly but surely I'm building the business and, and look, you know, I, I say it and I'll say it over and over again. Like, you know, I, I, I know quite a lot of charter operators and I'm good friends with most of them and, you know, we talk about horror stories. There's, there's good and bad people. You get good and bad clients. There's good and bad charter operators and I can safely say the people I get on my boat, I've had some brilliant people that I'm so close with now as friends as well as clients. It's 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 a pleasure for me to, to take these people out to sea and enjoy the day with them as well as catching like well catching the fish is a major bonus. We have a great time either way. It is and that's one of the beauties that fishing brings together the best people in the world to me. It is absolutely unreal. And just in closing I remember we went and organised, and we're doing Monster Fish, which is on the outdoor channel in the US. They said, we've got to go and do it. And they said, oh, we want a massive fish. We've got to catch big fish, you know, 200-pound yeah. sword. And I said, well, I've got a mate who does it, and he's bloody good at it, so we'll go down and do it. And I still remember catching that 220-kilo fish. And he said, yep, you need to get like a – if you got 200 or 300 pounds, it'd be huge. And we went and caught it. It took us a few days, but I still remember to this day when that fish came up beside the boat – and the young fellow in there, our mate James Yerbury as well, and doing it with all your mates and getting it all on camera and ticking the box for the biggest one they'd ever filmed. And I thought, you know what? That's what it is all about for me. And I ate swordfish for ages. And you know the one bit? Lee Rayner doesn't actually know because Lee was cutting up the fish the same day. He had a mako and a swordfish. And we're cutting up a 220 kilo swordfish. You're trying to give a bit away. I'm trying to stab people so they can't touch it. <laughs> and then, and he'll probably kill me if he ever listens to this, Lee walked away, and I actually helped myself to some of his swordfish as well. So 220 kilos was not enough for me. And can I tell you, for those people out there that carry on and go, oh, you'll never be able to eat all that fish, 
that was gone with my two kids in under, I reckon it was four months, the whole lot was gone. And do you know what I found out? Cooper was taking it to school and trading it. So these kids, and this is what you were saying before, people don't get fresh fish. So he was going to school. So we'd cook up big bit, grilled's beautiful, put it on. And you know what he was doing? He'd put it on after that. He'd take it to school the next day, cold swordfish. He was trading it for lemonade, for donuts. Awesome entrepreneur, but do not ever give away the swordfish. (laughs) Richie Abella, it was an absolute pleasure to see you. Thanks a lot. Now, just closing, it's Dreamcatcher 2, Roman numerals. It's Facebook, it's Instagram, and the website's coming soon. And if you just want to call me, the phone number is 0438 014 814. Give me a call anytime if you want to inquire about the business, what I've got available, the seasons. I'm as straight as an arrow. If they're going, I'll tell you they're going. And if they're not, I'll tell you they're not. I'll tell you what, if you want to catch a swordfish, ring Richie. Bloody awesome. Thanks, Al, much. Appreciate it. Done. Fishing is my life. It's in my DNA. From above the water and below the surface. It's who I am. Join me as I travel the world in search of the most insane fishing experiences on the planet. You got it. Big fish right there, Al. Yeah, baby. The size of it. Oh, buddy. Oh, Come on. Oh, that How good is that? Woohoo!